Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Michael Slate Show. My name is Sonsara Taylor, and I'm back once again as the stand-in Michael Slate. Of course, nobody can stand in for Michael Slate, but I am honored and happy to be here in his seat today, um, live at the studio this week on behalf of Michael Slate. And I've been a friend, a comrade, and a big fan of Michael Slate. So it's just a treat to be here. Um, we've got a great show for you, a really incredible segment we're going to start out with and, a, and an announcement that I'm very excited to share. A little later in the show, we're going to dig into the abortion rights emergency. As you know, Michael has been covering this for years. I've been a guest on his show talking about this emergency. And in the last few months, women in this country lost the fundamental right to decide for themselves when and whether to have a child, the constitutionally protected right to abortion. And 15 states have already stopped doing abortions. There is an emergency that's escalating. We're going to look at this frontally and uh, what needs to be done about it, how we got in this mess, how we get out of it. I'll bring you some excerpts from a major uh, an important national forum that was hosted by Rise Up for Abortion Rights.org last weekend. Um, and then we'll touch briefly on the uprising in Iran very briefly, but also there are protests around the world. So we'll have a moment, uh, a word on that at the end of the hour. But we have, we're not saving the best for last this week. We're putting the best right up front. And we are going to have a very special segment um, dealing with the emergency intensifying in the Ukraine and the heightened danger of what has been a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia in the Ukraine, erupting into open inter-imperialist war with escalation on each side and the danger of World War III, including the possibility of nuclear war. Also looking at the intensifying inter-imperialist rivalry and danger of war between the U.S. and China. With this a very dangerous moment for the world. So we're going to have a very special segment dealing with that combined with the an announcement of some upcoming material that is really exciting that I'm happy to share with you and let you in on. So with that, let me uh, just jump in to our first segment. The exciting part beyond the content is that Andy Z and I, uh, we co-host together the Revolution Nothing Less show on YouTube, youtube.com slash the RevComs on Thursday nights. We had the extraordinary and rare opportunity to sit down recently to do an interview with the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian, up close and personal. And we got all the heart and soul that he shared and the hardcore revolutionary perspective and analysis that he brings. And uh, this will be released on YouTube, starting November 3rd, we'll premiere the first of three interviews that we did with him, three episodes over the course of three weeks. And I'll bring a lot of that to the radio here as we go forward. But today we have an early release where B.A., Bob Avakian, speaks about the danger of inter-imperialist war. So let's dive right into that. You'll hear Andy and I introduce it briefly. You'll hear from B.A., and then I'll come back and be with you. It is a special episode. I don't want to waste any more time before we get to our Really big announcement. Go ahead, Andy. Sansara, you and I just had the most incredible and unique experience. We had the opportunity to sit down and interview Bob Avakian BA over several hours. We invited a small audience. This was a special and incredibly important experience that we're going to bring to the RNL show. Bob Avakian is a leader for this time when the future hangs in the balance. 
And it's going to really matter for people to experience our up-close and really personal conversation with B.A. What comes through in these conversations is Bob Avakian's heart and soul, his visceral feeling for the masses of people of the world, and the way he gets their potential, all of which contributes to his being really hardcore for a real, for an actual revolution. In these interviews, we get into his life, his stories, and the scientific method and approach to understanding the world, to making revolution, to what kind of new society we are aiming to bring into being. So, the big announcement is that these rare, up-close interviews will be aired over three shows, beginning on November 3rd, continuing on November 10th, and then concluding on November 17th. So in a little while, we're going to tell you more about the big premieres that we are planning to launch these three special episodes on November 3rd and ways that we want to invite you into making this a very big deal throughout society. But first, we want to share with you an early release excerpt of this interview, a teaser, if you will. And it's also, as Andy said, we promised a big segment on the intensifying danger of war, inter-imperialist war and even nuclear war. This is a topic that we got into. It's one of many topics we got into in this interview. So we want to share with you one of the questions and answers from the second interview, the second sit down we had with Bob Avakian, where we asked him about this. So let's go to that right now. Okay, so Bob Avakian, welcome back to uh, the second part of our interview on the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show. Yeah, I'm very excited to be here. Okay, so uh, in our previous discussion, uh, we began to discuss the essential analysis and a, a roadmap that's in your work, something terrible or something truly emancipating. And so today we want to dig a bit more into that, and we also want to take a look at the larger objective situation, which is really pressing down on humanity right now. We want to begin with this heightened danger uh, towards war, including a major war. So first of all, what is shaking uh, the major power centers and as people all over the world, I think very concerned is Putin's outrageous declaration to annex one-fifth, I believe, of the country of Ukraine, uh, territories that are currently contested, if not even uh, dominated uh, now by the Ukraine. Uh, and so that uh, as part of this, he declared that any attack on this territory would be considered an attack on Russia and treated as such, including potentially the use of nuclear weapons. And then there's Biden answering in kind, threatening him back, and even as you were bringing out the other day informally that he was uh, that he's threatening China over Taiwan. So it's a very dangerous situation. But it would be very helpful, I think, and people want to know from you what's going on here, and how should people understand this situation? Well, I think the most essential thing is this is con contention among different imperialist powers. The U.S. has been the dominant power in the world, and Russia went through the whole thing where the Soviet Union imploded. It hadn't been socialist for a long time, but it had been pretending to be socialist and then eventually gave that up, and the Soviet Union went out of existence. And Russia became very weak. You know, they had that uh, guy Yeltsin in there who could hardly stay sober for a day, you know, as a, as a head of state, you know. And, uh, and Russia became basically just, uh, you know, a very subordinate to the U.S. and to the whole, you know, quote-unquote Western alliance. And ever since Putin came in, his whole program has been to reassert, you know, Russian, first of all, you know, Russian integrity, but also just Russian influence in the world, you know, as an imperialist power, which is what it is. It's, a, it's an 
openly capitalist and imperialist power. And it's, you know, trying to break out of the, the subordinate position that it's been in since, particularly since the disintegration of the Soviet Union. And so this explains what he's been doing. You know, he went into Georgia a number of years back, you know, and now into, into Ukraine. And, you know, I think we could speculate, but I think Putin made some miscalculations that I think he felt that the U.S. and its Western imperialist alliance would make a lot of noise. Maybe they'd do some economic sanctions, but I don't really think that he understood that they would really throw as much into this as they have in terms, this is basically a war being fought by the U.S. with Ukrainian soldiers against Russian imperialism. And you know, the, the, all the, the intelligence, the, uh, increasingly the planning, the heavy armament, the, the most up-to-date weapons, this is all U.S. You know, and it's just the Ukrainians are the foot soldiers and the cannon fodder for this on that side of it. The U.S. has openly declared that its intention is, is to administer a defeat to Russia in order to weaken its overall challenge to U.S. imperialism. So, you know, that's why they've thrown everything they have into it. You know, just to go back for a second, I think Putin also miscalculated thinking that he could send in those sort of lightly armed troops and quickly take over the country. And he probably preferred to do that from the point of view of like, then you have more of a country, you know, that's intact rather than one that's devastated. And that was a miscalculation because already, you know, not only were the Ukrainians putting up a resistance, but the U.S. was already throwing a lot in to help them. So the U.S. has openly declared that, that its goal is to administer defeat to Russia. And on the other side, you know, Putin is very clear he's not going to accept a defeat for the same kind of logic. It's imperialist gangster logic. Neither side can afford to be, you know, to suffer a defeat. So what do you get then? Well, Putin talks about, okay, now this territory that you're referring to that they've annexed through these ridiculous referenda. You know, by the way, just speaking of ridiculous referenda, I have to say this. Once again, world-class hypocrisy from the U.S. imperialists. You know, they went into Iraq, you know, occupied the country illegally, you know, it was a, a violation of international law, you know, just a you know, blatant international war crime. They went into Iraq, got rid of the existing government, put in a puppet government, and then held elections while their troops are occupying the country. But that was a free and fair election, don't you know? You know, but now when Putin does the same thing in, in, the, in these sections of Ukraine, that he's the next, oh, this is a, you know, a sham. This is, you know, everybody has to denounce this. I mean, can't you see what, what you know, how ridiculous this is? This is anything but a free and fair election, unlike the ones we had in Iraq when we were occupying. Of course, they don't really say that, but that's the reality of it, right? So, you know, Putin has annexed these sections of, of the Ukraine, and he has made a statement that any, any threat to the integrity, you know, of Russia or to the territory of Russia, any threat, you know, he will use all weapons available, which means, and he repeated it twice and said, this is not a bluff. It means that that puts nuclear weapons on the table, even if you're talking about two tactical or nuclear, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, these have tremendous devastating effect. Let's not pretend there's some minor thing, oh, just tactical. You know, they have tremendous devastating effect. So he's taken that stand. Now the U.S. is saying, well, if Putin does that, then we'll, you know, I've seen some military analysts on the U.S. side, we'll go in and destroy all of his forces in Ukraine, knock out his fleet, in the, you know, and so on and so forth. 
And then what do you think Putin would do? And you know, they're saying, oh, well, we won't go nuclear. You know, even if Putin goes nuclear, we won't go nuclear. We'll just destroy all of his troops and his fleet. No, you know, de devastate his fleet. So what is Putin going to do in a situation like that? This is what I point out in this article. You get on this very deadly trajectory of escalation where neither side can accept the defeat. And pretty soon you're at the threshold of strategic nuclear weapons that could do devastation to the entire world. And, you know, vast numbers, if not the out, you know, right humanity as a whole. So this is what we're up against. And the big problem is, I mean, I just have to comment, you know, like you got all these people that pretend that they're progressive and whatever, and they're all going right along with U.S. imperialism and this, you know, and under the banner that Biden and all these people are putting out about this is a world, you know, not, this is a contest in the United States and throughout the world between democracy and autocracy. Trump is an autocrat. Putin is an autocrat. Xi Jinping is an autocrat. Of course, they don't talk about their own autocrats, you know, like <laughs> the heads of the government, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, you can go down the list, you know, that are all part of their alliance. You know, Hungary, you know, Poland, what have you. You know, those are all autocratic governments. But there are, are autocratic governments, like they said about the Shah of Iran back in 1978 when the uprising was occurring, which eventually led to his overthrow. There was an article that said, the Shah, you know, in one of the major newspapers in this country that said, the Shah of Iran may be a despot, but he's our despot. So, you know, our autocrats are okay, but the ones that are challenging our dominance in the world and our ability to plunder and slaughter people all over the world, which is what they've been doing forever, those autocrats are no good. This is not a battle, just even looking beneath the surface, you know, you can see that this is, this is a battle between imperialist powers, you know, all of which on both sides, you know, have whole histories of horrendous atrocities and, you know, base themselves on vicious exploitation of people and oppression of people all over the world. This is what's at stake. You know, and I just have to say, you know, certain people who have postured as being progressive have come out and made the most outrageous statements in the context thing. And I'm going to say it, little Stephen, you know, coming out and saying, you know, well, we're, we're more powerful than Russia. Why don't we just bomb the shit out of them? I mean, what are these people thinking? You know, they're so committed, ultimately, despite their progressive pretensions, they're so committed to U.S. imperialism that they've almost lost their fucking minds. You know, what do you think is going to happen? You go bomb Russia. You know, why don't we just wipe out all their air force? I mean, this kind of talk is like totally reckless and irresponsible. And when it comes from people with so-called progressive pretensions, it's all the more disgusting. I just have to say that. And people need to get up off this American chauvinism. You know, this country, you know, look, you know, and some of the same people who will rattle on about the whole history of this country and slavery and all that, turn around and, you know, and are, are either silent or openly supportive of the same system when it goes into the international arena to enforce its parasitism of plundering and exploiting people all over the world because I guess they have a little bit of a sense. You know, it's like somebody once said, living, somebody once wrote saying, living in this country is a little bit like living in the house of Tony Soprano. You know that there's a lot of goodies coming in. You don't know exactly, maybe you're not really entirely up on what Tony Soprano's doing out there, 
but you kind of have a sense that whatever he's doing, and how, however you know fucked up you might think it would be, is allowing you to have all the goodies that comes from living in the house. And that's what the attitude of a lot of these American chauvinists, you know, so-called progressives, you know, and people need to get up off this and wake up to what's actually happening and what they're, look at the, you know, you think the history of this ruling class in this country is somehow divorced from what they do in the world as a whole? You know, do you think their nature changes when they go out outside the borders of the U.S. and all of a sudden they become, you know, uh, really kind-hearted people, you know, who are carrying out charity around the world, you know? Yeah, they do some charity to cover up the crimes that they're committing. I mean, you know, we came forward, me and people of my generation came forward during Vietnam, you know, the Vietnam War. and. You know, I did a lot of study of that, and so did many other people, to, to see what was actually going on in that war. And, you know, we discovered that, and this is why a lot of the American troops rebelled, because of the atrocities they were being ordered to carry out. I mean, wiping out whole villages, you know, with old people and children, just wiping them out, shooting babies. And I'm not exaggerating. Go look into it if you think I'm exaggerating. You know, they killed between two and three million civilians in a, in a country of Vietnam, which at the time had a population maybe of only a little more than 10 times that. You know, and, you know, the troops, you know, not only were they, you know, turning whole sections of women in the capital of Saigon and other places, in, you know, forcing them into prostitution, but they were mass raping women, you know, in these villages, all, you know, just, you know, you can just read up on this, you know, and so, this has not changed. The nature of this system that did all that in Vietnam has not changed. You know, and what has changed is some of the people opposing them are not people you can support, like Islamic fundamentalists who carry out all kinds of atrocities of their own, although on a scale, they can only envy what the U.S. imperialists do on the scale that they do it. You know, or Russia and China, you mentioned China, you know, first of all, Nancy Pelosi, goes to Taiwan, or supposedly everybody doesn't challenge the insistence by the Chinese government in Beijing that Taiwan is part of China. Supposedly even the U.S. policy doesn't challenge that, even though they have all these relations with Taiwan. Well, she went over there and essentially said differently, you know, and basically treated Taiwan as an independent country, you know, and it was a deliberate provocation. And you know, I'm not defending the Chinese imperialist rulers. We're very clear that they're also capitalist imperialists and have been since capitalism was restor restored in China shortly after the death of Mao decades ago in 1976. But nevertheless, this was a provocation. And then it's followed up by Biden making a point of having himself interviewed where he can say, you know, answer the question, well, you know, if, if, if the Chinese, i.e. meaning the, you know, the Chinese on the mainland, the People's Republic of China, attacks Taiwan, will the U.S. troops, in other words, U.S. armed forces, get involved on the side of Taiwan? He made a, I mean, you know, look, when you interview the President of the United States, you don't ask questions the President of the United States doesn't want to ask, okay, unless you're some hostile force, and this reporter was not. So then Biden has the opportunity to say, yes, we'll get involved militarily. Well, that's a provocation against China, and it's actually an invitation, if you want to look at it in a certain light, it's a, it can be seen as an invitation to them to attack Taiwan quicker. You rather, you know, because the U.S. would be less set up to get involved. So, you know, this is the dangers that are going on, you know, and you know, all this ridiculous stuff, people sticking their heads down or 
You know, I stay in my own lane. You know, you think if there's a nuclear war, it won't touch your lane? I mean, c come on, let's get f***ing serious around here. You know, you think if U.S. and China go to war, your, your lane is going to be somehow, uh, you know, I'm just going along in my lane. I mean, people need to wake up and get serious. This is a contest between oppressors, the world's leading oppressors, with the U.S. number one. Yes, USA number one oppressor and plunderer in the entire world for decades. And, you know, it's up to us to oppose our own ruling class. Yes, we also oppose Russian imperialism. Yes, we also oppose Chinese imperialism. But we're not living in Russia. And we're not living in China. And if we were living in Russia and China, our primary focus would be on opposing our ruling class where we were. We live in the United States. All these crimes committed by these imperialists are done in our name. Supposedly, you know, the army goes out there to protect our freedoms and blah, blah, blah. They go out there to plunder people so that U.S. imperialism can suck the blood of literally billions of people. And if you think I'm exaggerating, go on the website, Revcom.us, and read the articles by Raymond Lotta, which get into the parasitism of U.S. imperialism, how it is an international exploiter and super exploiter of people in the global south or the third world, the poorer countries of the world, and what this has to do with what the U.S. looks like internally and how it thrives. You know, even the consumer goods that people, ha you know, have are cheapened, you know, more affordable to the mass of population here because of the way that people are viciously exploited. More than 150 million children in the third world who have no childhood. Hundreds of millions of women, like those in Bangladesh working in factories making the stuff that goes to Walmart or whatever. You know, people all over the world in similar situations. This is our, it is our responsibility to oppose this primarily, while we also oppose these, oppose these other imperialists. This is where we live. This is being done in the, all these massive crimes, and now the threat of a, you know, existential threat of nuclear war. A threat to the very, that's what existential, existential means, threat to the existence of, the, of humanity. All that's being done in our name. And idiots like, you know, Steve Van Sant aside, now I'm giving him a break by saying idiocy. You know, we have a responsibility to first and foremost oppose our own imperialist ruling class and what it's doing. And more generally, I've made a statement and I'll make it again. The masses of people in the world, and this is very acutely and urgently posed now, the masses of people in the world cannot any longer afford. It was always terrible that these are the people ruling the world. But it's now acutely, acutely posed. We can no longer afford to allow these imperialists to dominate the world and to determine the destiny of humanity. They need to be overthrown as quickly as possible. All right, so that was the very first sneak peek preview excerpt of a very wide-ranging up-close-and-personal interview that I conducted together with Andy Z of the revolutionary leader Bob Avakian, who is also the architect of the new communism. And in that excerpt, as you just heard, we released it early on the Revolution Nothing Less show, and I'm bringing it to you here on the airwaves on the Michael Slate show because it is dealing with something that is so timely and so urgent, which is the 
tremendously dangerous game of Russian roulette that the imperialist gangsters who run our society, our, the country that we live in, the USA, yes, I'm talking about Biden and the Democrats as well as the whole ruling class, the game of Russian roulette, they are playing with the Russian imperialist gangsters, Putin and the rest, and at the same time with the imperialist gangsters uh, running China, Xi Jinping and that whole cabal. These people, these imperialists, as Bob Avakian just said, can no longer, humanity can no longer afford to let them rule the world and compete over who will dominate, hold the world hostage, and threaten the world's future. So we uh, released that early so you could hear it. Uh, the full interview is coming out online on November 3rd. There's going to be a premiere, online premiere at youtube.com slash the revcoms. People can tune in all over the place. November 3rd, it's a Thursday at 5 p.m. Pacific. It will also be available at revcom.us. And just to give you a sense, the rest of the interview, it's, it's, it's many hours we sat down. It's very wide-ranging, as I said. Uh, Bob Avakian shared with tremendous generosity his life experience from growing up in Berkeley, uh, what he learned through his encounters and deep friendships uh, from his childhood on uh, from black people and their struggle for emancipation, how that put an imprint on him and has played a big role in his life, black music, other other influences in that way. Um, what he learned working with the Black Panther Party, what he learned in the struggle against the Vietnam War, and how these and other lessons have stayed with him and he brings them to bear in the world today, how he became the wide-ranging uh, scientific thinker and foremost revolutionary leader and thinker in the world today, and uh, quite a bit more. It's, he's got a lot of sense of humor. He's dealing with questions of life and death seriousness for the future of humanity, and yet he remains he maintains his sense of humor his sense of poetry. I think he burst in his song several times during the interview. It's going to be a lot of fun to bring that to you. Uh, so that's just a sense that there's more to come. Uh, once again, you are listening to The Michael Slate Show. I am your guest host again this week, sitting in for Michael Slate. And now we want to shift gears. I promised earlier that we were going to look at the abortion rights emergency that has been intensifying since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on June 24th of this year, 15 states now, 22 million women and girls of childbearing age no longer have legal access to the right to abortion. So last weekend, RiseUpForAbortionRights.org held a national forum online to bring people together and discuss this emergency and what must be done, and especially to take on the notion that the only thing we really have to do is get out there and vote. In fact, voting will not be enough to stop this violent assault on women's lives and their fundamental rights. And relying on voting, relying on the Democrats, is a big part of what got us into this nightmare. There's going to be a need for tremendous resistance and struggle. That's how the right to abortion was won in the first place. That's how all of our rights that have been wrenched from this system have been won. Even, as Bob Avakian pointed out last summer, even the right to vote was not won by voting. People had to go into the streets People had to put it on the line. People went to jail. People gave their lives. Winning the rights of the people has taken struggle. So what I want to do is bring you two excerpts from the presentations that were put forward at that forum. The first is going to be an excerpt from the presentation given by Merle Hoffman. She is the CEO and founder 
of Choices Women's Medical Center, one of the longest standing legal abortion clinics in this country, over 50 years in operation. She is also a co-initiator of Rise Up for Abortion Rights. So we'll hear from her first, then I'll come back and introduce the second segment, which is actually from myself. Um, I'm a co-initiator of RiseUpForAbortionRights.org together with Merle. So let's hear Merle Hoffman first. I have been in the struggle pre-Roe and now post-Roe. So I have a half a century of experience uh, to reflect on. And it's taught me a lot of things. Uh, But when I look back, um, because I founded one of the first legal abortion clinics in the country, this was in 1971. And I say, and and it's important to understand about me, that my feminism and my politics and my commitment and my passion uh, regarding this issue did not come from books and it wasn't theoretical. It came in the shape of individual women coming in the thousands, in the thousands for their legal safe abortions. So it was from that that inspired me. I have been stating, me personally, (laughs) that women's rights are in a state of emergency since 1977. And the third time, of course, in this kind of um, radical way was with Rise Up. Because you see, um, we knew that the decision uh, was being heard in June and nothing was being done. I mean, everybody was going along. And I do remember I called up a, a very old colleague of mine uh, from one of the major, of the leader of the, one of the major women's organizations in New York. I said, what are we going to do about this emergency? What are we going to do? And the answer was, uh, what emergency? What emergency? So that was uh, a little frightening. Um, So there was no decision yet, right, in January when Rise Up did our first action on January 22nd at the Supreme Court. There was no decision. There was no leak. And we knew that we were looking at an absolute catastrophe. And we knew that we had to do something. I knew I had to do something. The people that I got involved with that co-initiated Rise Up also knew that something definitively had to be done. So we did it. We went out, we rallied, we did some, what we considered very creative, radical actions that upset some people, but that's good because they noticed there was an emergency. They noticed there was a problem. So why am I with Rise Up today? Um, Why? I mean, People have said, well, you should spend your energy on vote, vote. Of course, I'll vote, but believe me, believe me, it's not enough. And I want to talk about a little history. Um, Brookline, Massachusetts, uh, late 80s, a gunman dressed in black came into uh, a Planned Parenthood clinic, killed two clinic workers and went into another one and shot three other clinic workers. Okay, and that was the third shooting at clinics at that time. March 10th, Dr. David Gunn, when he arrived for work, now he was in Pensacola. He worked in Pensacola. He was one of those doctors that was traveling. He was shot dead. 
And things got so hot and so bad that Janet Reno, Clinton was the president at the time, Janet Reno sent armed guards to guard me because of the death threats and to guard choices because of the bomb threats. Um, in 1994, Clinton was the president and there was more violence, more killing against abortion providers than in all the other administrations. And there was also the killing under Obama of Dr. George Tiller, who was a very dear friend and someone that I continually referred my patients to. You see, once they have someone in the White House or in the government, and I'm talking about the antis, fascists, et cetera, they relax a little bit. But if they don't have what they think is their support on the highest levels of government, they escalate, escalate their violence. So Clinton and Obama, one could say, were the most pro-choice presidents of all. Yet we had more violence, more difficulty, more struggle, more feral lawsuits than in any other time. I, I would say I look at this and I say these institutions cannot deliver for us. They can't deliver what we need. They can't deliver the support of a fundamental human and civil right for the majority of people in this country, 51% who are women, they can't deliver it. So we can't totally put our faith into these institutions. All right, that was Merle Hoffman presenting at the National Forum online held last weekend by RiseUpForAbortionRights.org. That's the number four if you want to find the website, RiseUpNumberForAbortionRights.org. She is the CEO and founder of Women's Choices Medical Center out in Queens, New York. They've been doing abortions since before Roe v. Wade and now after Roe v. Wade has been overturned 51 years. She is also a co-initiator of Rise Up for Abortion Rights, presenting at the forum, voting is not enough. We need struggle in the streets to win legal abortion on demand nationwide now. Next, we're going to play uh, the presentation that I gave to that uh, national forum. Uh, this is me speaking, Sansara Taylor, at the Rise Up for Abortion Rights.org forum. You are listening to The Michael Slate Show. A 16-year-old in Florida told by a court that she was too immature to get an abortion, that she would be forced to have a child against her will. A Texas woman forced to carry a dead fetus turned into a walking coffin for two weeks. This, as you have heard, is just a taste of what is already unfolding since the Supreme Court overturned abortion rights last June. 22 million women and girls of childbearing age across this country no longer have the legal right to decide for themselves when and whether to have a child. And the Christian fascists who are driving this assault are not stopping. They are moving to criminalize all abortions for all women in all circumstances, to tell women that their aspirations, their plans for their lives, their dignity, their physical safety, and yes, their lives count for nothing. They are aiming for a society that is far more suffocating and oppressive to women, to LGBTQ people, to immigrants, to black people far more oppressive and suffocating than even the worst of what most people today can imagine. And as was made clear 
when this fascist movement latched onto Donald Trump, they will also incorporate the crudest sexual degradation and misogynist violence against women alongside their sanctimony. This must be stopped and only the people can stop it. Forced motherhood is female enslavement. And if women cannot decide for themselves when and whether to have a child, they cannot be free. And if women, half of humanity are enslaved, then no one is free. So we have to be clear, reversing this war on women is going to take struggle. It is not gonna come on the cheap. It is going to take unleashing the fury of women, millions and millions of women and girls against thousands of years of degradation and brutality and being treated as property of men and incubators of babies and sexual objects. It is gonna take unleashing this fury now in the streets and massive struggle. We have to take a page from our sisters in Latin America who went into the streets, who raised the green bandana of abortion rights and tore down the laws that criminalized abortion in Argentina, in Colombia, in Mexico. We need to take a page from our sisters and the men rising up with them in Iran right now, the courage and the joy they are demonstrating in the streets. Yet, we are being told and all too many pro-choice people are listening to this message that the most important thing and really the only thing that we can do is channel our hopes, our dreams, our money, our energies into the upcoming elections. But I want to be very clear, and you need to be very clear, relying on the elections, relying on the Democrats will not get us out of this emergency. In fact, relying on these elections and these Democrats is a big part of how we got in this horrible situation. For decades, as Merle was just talking about, Christian fascist fanatics bombed clinics, hunted down and killed doctors, screamed that women were murderers for choosing abortion. And they built up a fanatical, unthinking, woman-hating movement inside and outside of government. They, along with fascists of different kinds, have now captured the Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. They've captured the Republican Party. They control much of the federal bench of judges. They have captured many state houses across the country, and they have built up an unthinking base of millions that is armed to the teeth and many of them preparing for and chomping at the bit for civil war. And through this whole time, as all of this was growing in momentum, what did the Democrats do? They refused to fight this the way it needed to be fought. They refused to call these fascists out as the women haters they are. Instead, they sought common ground with these women haters. They ceded the moral high ground to them. They argued that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, as if there's something morally wrong with women deciding for themselves their own destinies and reproductive lives. There is not. And these Democrats refuse to call people into the streets to struggle. This is why I joined with Merle, together with others from very different political perspectives, to form Rise Up for Abortion Rights in the first place. Because even, last, even after last December 1st, when the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the case that went forward to obliterate abortion rights, and even as it was becoming clear that's where they were headed, the Democrats and the so-called leaders of the so-called pro-choice movement who are slavishly tied to the Democrats were capitulating, giving up in advance, 
They weren't calling people into the streets. Instead, they were downplaying the danger and pointing people once again to wait for the next elections after the right had been taken away. So we stepped into this void and we waged a fight. We staged protests. We went to jail. We led student walkouts across the country, tens of thousands of students walking out week after week. We raised and popularized the green bandana from our sisters in Latin America. We involved artists and actors and public voices of conscience. We disrupted business as usual from Amy Coney Barrett's appearances to the New York City Liberties basketball game to mega churches in Texas and so much more calling on people, challenging people to stand up and take to the streets to not let this right be taken. And the truth is, if more people had joined us, we might have stopped the Supreme Court from taking this right away. And it would have mattered. It wouldn't have been easy, but it was possible. And even as we did not prevail, it's important that everybody who was part of this understand it matters that we planted a fighting pole of uncompromising opposition. This has put people, the people broadly in a much stronger place to stand up and wage the fight that is even more urgently needed now. So now with the stakes even higher as this juggernaut of hatred for women, enslavement for women, Christian fascist, dark ages, terror is descending and accelerating. It is even more important that we build on what we began, that we get back out there, that we rally many more and we take this fight higher that we draw in thousands and soon millions into the streets an unrelenting, nonviolent, sustained struggle to demand and to win legal abortion nationwide, on demand, without apology, now. So today, we are calling on everybody tuning in and all those that we can reach to take this mission and message out everywhere. Reach people, especially students on the campuses, but everywhere that people gather. Build for protests we are calling this December 1st on the one year anniversary of the oral arguments in the case that took away abortion rights. Be on the courts that day protesting, saying we can't rely on the courts, we must rely on ourselves, raise the green bandana, do die-ins, draw people into this movement and this fight. And in the lead up on November 25th, it's an international day of action to stop violence against women. It is also Black Friday in this country. We want to turn that into Green Friday, going with disruptive protest into shopping hubs and getting people's attention and drawing them into this fight. And we need to do this as part of reaching and waking up the millions that are going to be required to win. Again, this will not be easy. And not only are there fascists hell-bent on stopping us and going forward with the enslavement of women and much worse to come, there are woke opportunists in the so-called movement who are out to wreck this movement as well. And this has to be called out. It is telling that the very day after the Supreme Court decision came down, while we rise up for abortion rights, we're in the streets in DC and nationwide, leading thousands to demand immediate federal action to restore legal abortion nationwide, a motley cabal of so-called grassroots organizers who had done absolutely nothing to mobilize people to stop the overturning of Roe issued a scurrilous attack filled with baseless lies, libelous accusations of financial fraud and anti-communist fear-mongering against Rise Up for Abortion Rights, against myself, against other revcoms, that is revolutionary communists, and most of all spearheading and demonizing the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian. This did harm. It was a gift 
to fascists and to the forces of repression everywhere. And we need to be honest. While many stood up to this attack, and I urge you to go to riseupforabortionrights.org and read the many powerful statements from religious leaders, educators, longtime freedom fighters, and others taking on these attacks. Far too many people who had been working with Rise Up For Abortion Rights fell prey to these attacks. So I wanna say straight up, if you are somebody who fell away because you got demoralized that we lost Roe, you need to snap out of it. This was never going to be an easy fight. And it is urgent that you get back in this with even higher stakes now, you are needed. And if you are somebody who fell away on bad terms, you need to confront the damage of what you got caught up in. You need to criticize it, you need to repudiate it, and you need to get back into this fight while raising standards overall. And to everybody, including people who are very new to this movement, it is going to be necessary for us to struggle with each other over the way forward with substance, with principle, and with largeness of mind and generosity of spirit. We are not gonna agree on everything. That's fine. That's how we learn from each other. That's how we forge unity. But this is completely different than spreading personal attacks, lies, and fear-mongering about communists. For myself, I have never hidden the fact, and I will never hide the fact, that I am a proud follower of the revolutionary leader, Bob Avakian. He's somebody of enormous principle and integrity who has forged a new communism, a new framework for human emancipation. Among other things, he's been providing deep and real-time leadership for how to wage the fight around abortion rights. It's available at revcom.us. The haters who attacked Rise Up claim he is a cult leader, and they do this to scare you away from thinking about what he's actually saying. I say, don't be an intellectual scaredy cat. Engage his arguments for why and how a real revolution is the only way to fully break all the chains that bind women and end all oppression based on gender and sexual orientation. And to do this as part of breaking the chains of enslavement and oppression that afflict people all over the world. I invite you to learn about this by watching the YouTube show I co-host, the RNL Revolution Nothing Less show at youtube.com slash the Revcoms. At the same time, let me emphasize this. It is imperative that whether you agree with me on the need for revolution or not, whether you plan to vote in the upcoming elections or not, whatever viewpoint or background you are coming from, if you do not want to see women enslaved, if you don't wanna see a horrific future dominated by these Christian fascists, then we need to come together. We need to unite all who can possibly be united to rise up together with courage, with determination, and with the women of the world and future generations in our hearts. Their lives will be shaped by what we dare or what we refuse to do. Rise up for abortion rights. Okay, so that was the presentation that I delivered to last weekend's Rise Up for AbortionRights.org uh, National Forum online. You can find the entire program, the discussion that followed the presentation, powerful presentation and video messages of solidarity from around the world, from El Salvador, Argentina, Mexico, Colombia, um, other countries, including Teodora, um, a woman who was imprisoned for 11 years in El Salvador for a miscarriage with a warning, a message of solidarity and a warning of what happens when abortion is criminalized. There are countless women. 
I think over 30, languishing in prison right now in El Salvador for miscarriages and allegedly harming a fetus in different ways. And this is a, a future that we're looking at here if we don't rise up and fight. So you can see the whole video discussion at riseupforabortionrights.org. It's the number four, riseupforabortionrights.org. And you are listening to The Michael Slate Show. We've got some time left, so I'd like to play this. I want to welcome back in um, Merle and bring Sansara into this conversation as well. There were several questions that have come in that I, I want to discuss with you both and also some things that I've been thinking about. We are, as you both spoke, spoke to, we are in an emergency situation that caught many people um, off guard. And I, and I wanted to, to actually start, start with that. Um, both of you in different ways spoke to some of the factors that contributed to how we got into a situation where we lost this fundamental right. And I was wondering if from, from both of your perspectives, you could speak to why, why even now, three months after this, this fundamental right has been taken away, why is there still not um, a recognition of the severe emergency that we're in? Why is that? And, and what are the factors that led to, to this situation? If I may, um, I strongly believe and feel that, like I said, it's the outposts in our head, you know, because basically we should have been out in the millions, like the Black Lives Matter movement, in the millions. And yet, you know, when we started, there was nothing but silence, an empty space. Okay. So your question is very important. I would say that women um, have been fed these narratives. There is tremendous shame about having an abortion, tremendous. Uh, the narrative has been postulated by the right that you are killing a baby, that you really don't care. Your sexuality is, is just something that you throw around. You don't take an abortion seriously. Like you get up on a Saturday morning and may say, wow, I'm pregnant. I think I'll go to choices for the day. I mean, that, that you need to be shown, you need to be led. Women are basically children. Goes back to the old Eve kind of thing, driven by passion, feelings, and sex, of course. You know, sex does play a role in all of this. And uh, we are, as a country, collectively uh, about, if I would say, what kind of person, a 15-year-old boy in terms of how we understand and accept our sexuality and are able to deal with it. So the first thing I always say when say, well, what can, what can I do? You have to look in the mirror. And you know how many people have had abortions since legalization? Millions and millions and millions. It's an extraordinary constituency. Their friends, their families, their husbands, their partners. They have to be able to say, come out of this closet, this abortion closet, and say, yes, I had an abortion. I made this moral choice. It's only then when it's, normalized in that sense that women will not be so ashamed or afraid or afraid you know i mean uh, but on the other hand i've never heard the word abortion mentioned so often since this all happened i mean it's really quite extraordinary i mean entertainers this one that one want to get on almost a bandwagon but this is not performative politics 
It's not performance, it's life and death. So that's why it requires courage. Yeah, I guess um, what I'd like to add to that, and I, I really appreciate those remarks and your and your presentation overall, Merle, I, I really appreciated it, um, mm. is two things. One is I think people don't understand precisely because of a lot of the shame Merle is talking yeah. about, but also for other reasons I'll get into, people don't understand that what's concentrated in the fight over abortion is exactly what Rise Up for Abortion Rights has said. It's forced motherhood is female enslavement. And women cannot be free without the right to decide for themselves, without shame, without coercion, without stigma, without legal restriction, when and whether to have a child. Why did the anti-abortion movement latch on to abortion rights so much? Why have these fascists rallied around it? Why is it so central to the program of fascists everywhere in the world? Um, it, it has to do with the fact that Abortion and birth control, which is also under attack with it, has enabled women to enter public life in a way that was unheard of for centuries and millennia. If you look at the 50 years since Roe v. Wade, the radical changes in the social position of women. No, it didn't end all oppression. It didn't end rape culture. There's all kinds of revenge and all kinds of ugly ways. The rape porn and growing strip club culture and a lot of commodification and different of women's bodies and sexual degradation in different ways are a form of revenge against the advances of women into public life. But there have been big changes. Everybody knows this. Women are doctors. Women are lawyers. Women are in academia at higher rates than men. They're in college at higher rates than men. They're, they're in all these realms. They still face discrimination, sexual harassment, all of this. But they're in public life in a different way. And it is this this is what these fascists hate. They really want, and they're going after abortion because it is a central linchpin in enabling this social change. And so this is on the one hand, what's driving this. You know, and all these changes, they're rooted in the struggle of women. They're also rooted in changes in the, in the global economy, mm -hmm. pulling women into the workforce in this imperialist system that we live in. There's a lot of reasons for this. But, but on the one hand, the fascists have gone after this because it is about women. And it is about controlling women and enslaving women. But on the other side, and this gets to why we can't rely on voting and the Democrats, on the other side, you've had the other section of the ruling class, the Democratic Party, who have done everything they can to avoid talking about women. I mean, they, you think about what they say right now. They say abortion is health care, which, of course, <laughs> abortion is health care. But it's not just and you, there's nobody blowing up podiatrist's office. They're not stalking heart surgeons. They're blowing up and stalking and restricting abortion because it has to do with women's body and women's control and women's freedom. You know, they, so this is a, a sleight of hand that the Democrats and too much of the so-called movement uses to avoid talking about women. They say it's about bodily autonomy, but they're not against bodily autonomy in the abstract. A lot of these fascists were out there saying my body, my choice to deny uh, mask mandates, vaccine mandates, all of this. They're not against bodily autonomy in the abstract. They're against women controlling their bodies and being free. And this is what not only the fascists have gone after, but the Democrats and the so-called movement have refused to take on. So millions are confused by this. They don't know that what's being fought out is women's freedom. And I just want to say one other thing, because the movement, one of the things they attacked us for, these opportunists and woke, woke mob, is saying the word woman. I mean, we're having a fight over abortion, over the enslavement or liberation of women, and we're not supposed to talk about women. 
And I saw somebody in the comments said that their trans son had an abortion recently. And it is very important that we recognize and we fight for the rights of trans people, non-binary people to have abortion, to have access to abortion without stigma and to have all the other health care they need and that we stand up against the fascist assault on trans people and trans youth in particular. This is essential. But when it comes to abortion, erasing women, this is absurd and this contributes to the disorientation that millions feel. So I just wanted to add that dimension. No, that's a good point. That's a very good point, Sarah. Right, right. I mean, we're killed by the language. <laughs> you know, it just puts us into a labyrinth of confusion and makes it <laughs> so much more, uh, you know, easy to just latch on to some simple slogan or an attack, you're a homophobe, you're a racist. I mean, you can't really have a conversation anymore about anything. So it's a problem. It's a problem. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I was uh, called a, a transphobe, and yet I opened one of the first, if not the first, in 2015, you know, trans healthcare programs in the country. But it doesn't matter because facts are irrelevant to a lot of people, which was one of the reasons I again joined Rise Up and co-initiated it because this is the only place I was hearing the truth of the issue, which I've lived for 50 years. I want to leave you with a song. This is Baraye by Shervin Hajipur. He's an Iranian singer, and he drew the words for this song, which has become an anthem of that uprising from many of the posts on social media of why people were protesting. So for the Michael Slate Show, I want to say thank you to Gary Baca for engineering Henry, Henry Carson, some I love to Michael Slate. <laughs> این هوای آلوده برای ولی از رو درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سکهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای برای من